Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. And we're here talking with GM CEO and longtime member of Fortune's Most Powerful Women community, Mary Barra. Mary, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start by talking about the moment that we're in now. At the time we recorded this, we were two weeks into massive global protests over the killing of George Floyd and deep into discussing issues of systemic racism and police reform. Now, earlier, you sent a strongly worded note to your staff about this. You mentioned George Floyd and also Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. So thank you for that. And you said you were both impatient and disgusted by the fact that we as a society continually ask why this happens instead of what to do about it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're thinking behind that note and and what you plan to do? Well, um, thank you. And, you know, I think as the details unfolded, I personally felt very sad because I'm an action-oriented person. I'm an engineer. And I kept reflecting on, you know, why does this keep happening over and over? And what can we do to drive change? And so in talking to a couple of our senior leaders, uh, that's where the idea to create the Inclusion Advisory Board came from. And having this focus on action and not just stopping at the why, but what can we do? What change can we make? And, you know, we reflected, I'm, I'm proud of General Motors' work and driving to have a very inclusive workforce, but it also, I knew we could do more and we needed to do more with a sense of urgency. And so that's what, you know, we hope to do with not only our inclusion advisory board, but also one of the things we've recognized is we need to listen. And as I put this note out to all of our employees globally, I had a, just a tremendous response from many people thanking us for taking the stand. But what was even more powerful is people sharing their stories and sharing what it meant to them. And that was really impacted me as a, as a mom and as a human being of knowing we needed to take steps and, and drive change. So we plan to start with listening. By the end of the month, we'll have form the Inclusion Advisory Board, and then we want to move forward, but in a very thoughtful way so we can drive lasting change. So one of the things I've been thinking about, in particular as you were talking, is that GM quite literally built the Black American middle class. You know, it's a complicated history, Jim Crow, Great Migration, but it's a real one. And the jobs that were offered to, to Black workers had the extra added benefit of giving a generation of people enough income to support jazz music and Motown music and really change culture. So I know you're still formulating your response to all of this and listening, but how do you see GM having a unique role now? Well, I am proud of our history and everything the company's done. We just went back into the archives and looked at General Motors' response in the late 60s and the early 70s, and there was a a strong commitment. And I always believe I sit here today as a CEO of General Motors because of the work that has been done in diversity. But it also highlights to me that we have much more work to do and that General Motors can play a very big role of not only what we do within the company and how we drive the culture and how we drive inclusion. Because I believe if everybody can really bring their true self to work, they bring their best self to work. And that can be powerful. But I I also think there's things that we can influence. We are, but we need to build on what we do in our local um, communities. 
and and then what role I can play with the force of General Motors behind me on the um, business roundtable activity as well. So I feel we have a great responsibility. And I believe that there's much that we can do inside our company that, you know, and, and with our supply base, I've also had suppliers reach out, dealers reach out. And so when you look at that entire footprint, it's pretty large. And that's where I think the opportunity is and the responsibility. Yeah, Mary, I'm glad you brought up the Business Roundtable Committee that you were a member of. You know, we've had this flood of statements from CEOs, many of them very passionate and obviously authentic and sincere. But some people say, hey, that's just words. What are you going to do? So from that position of the Business Roundtable, what are you going to do, do you think? Well, I think what Doug McMillan and Josh Bolton have formed is a team, a small team representing the entire business. BRT to work on on the four areas they outline and from a providing financing in the whole financial system to healthcare and and what can be done to provide more inclusion from a healthcare situation to the committee I'm responsible for, which is education and workforce. And I think that team can have a huge impact not only on pre-K through 12, but also then on, on reskilling and with what's happening with the technology revolution. How do we take people who want to work today and make sure they have the right skills to take these jobs that are going to provide them a great opportunity in the future. And then the fourth is criminal justice. And so if we can approach those four areas very systematically and make change, I think that it can have a profound impact. And and I think there's a, a strong sense of urgency across all of the BRT membership, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. So I want to change the subject a little bit and talk about the pandemic. It's kind of mind-blowing that we're dealing with this on top of the health crisis and economic crisis that we already had. But you're in a pretty unique position because you opened your factories a few weeks ago, and I'd love to hear how that's going. Sure. Well, we borrowed a lot of the lessons learned from our operations in China, our operations in Korea, for the most part, kept running up throughout the pandemic as it was uh, at its peak from a Korea perspective. So we took those lessons learned and we really believe, and, and we also had plants in the United States and warehouses running throughout the peak of COVID in this country. In our warehouses, they were deemed essential services to supply parts to dealers because personal transportation was so important. And then building PPE, masks, shields, even some gowns, as well as the ventilator project. And so we needed to make sure we could do that safely. So we took those lessons, developed the protocols. Uh, We're fortunate that our medical director uh, used to work at the CDC, and we were able to put a protocol that we believe, and we have no data to suggest that there has been any spread in the facilities to date, although you know we're prepared as people who caught the virus from outside the facility of how to contain that once it is in our facility. So with safety as our overriding priority, we started on one shift and then gradually grew. We started with training and made sure there were Q&A sessions because it wasn't just about knowing we had a safe protocol. It was also making sure we addressed all of the employees' concerns and questions so they had confidence they were working in a safe environment. Are you anywhere close to normal now? We believe by the the end of June, we should be very close. We're in many facilities. We're already at three shifts. So we'll continue to advance. We're working with the supply base because it's a global supply base. So that's an important piece of it as well. But we continue to make progress every day. So I'm curious about the big picture, the big vision for electric vehicles, for example. Where are some of the big ideas on the runway? Well, at General Motors, we believe in an all-electric future. And so we're very excited about 
the future that we're laying out. Shortly before the pandemic became very severe in the United States, we had an EV day and we showed not only our electric vehicles that are coming out, just some of them, not all of them, but we also shared our Ultium platform, which has our cell structure and our platform structure that's going to allow us to leverage scale and the commonality, but to do a wide range of vehicles from Chevrolets to Buicks to GMCs to Cadillacs. And I think that will be important because we're a full range manufacturer and we want to make sure EVs are affordable and provide value from a Chevrolet perspective, but then also create true luxury from a Cadillac perspective. And so we're well on our way. In fact, even during this period of time, we've actually accelerated our work from an EV perspective and we'll have uh, new vehicles on our new platform rolling out as early as next year. That's fascinating. So you're saying the crisis accelerated the development of EVs. Why was that? Well, we stepped back and looked at, you know, what were things that were very, very important. Our EV programs, as well as our AV programs, were very important. And as we looked and obviously looked to save cost as well, there were some programs where we said, hey, if this is a minor refresh, let's postpone that. That freed up resources to work on the EV front. So we have great progress being made, and I'm really proud of the team for the work they've done during this period where primarily they were working from home. Mary, the crisis has had obviously an, an enormous impact on how people use their cars. I mean, I, I now only drive six miles a week. I go to the grocery store and I come home. What do you think the lasting change in automobile usage is going to be as a result of this event? You know, Alan, I think it's really too soon to tell. I think that, you know, there's some case being made that people are going to not be that in happy with mass transit and want to rely on their own vehicle more. One of the reasons we focus so much on electric vehicles during this period of time is we think also, though, you know, we all saw that there the environmental impact of less miles traveled and EVs are going to be a big piece of that. So we think that could drive the shift even faster. Clearly, we think this year will be impacted. Last year was an extremely healthy year, but it's too soon to tell how things will progress as we move forward. But I think definitely EVs are going to be a strong part of it, and uh, people having their own transportation will still be very much in demand. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, I get a sense from the CEOs that I've been talking with that this pandemic is actually accelerating their digital transformation. Companies that weren't that aggressive before the crisis are being forced now to step up for the sake of their survival. Is that what you're seeing? Alan, we're seeing that across Deloitte's client base. The current circumstances are compressing a multi-year period of change management into a few short weeks. Those organizations that have made the investments in digital transformation are today finding it to be a source of competitive advantage. Clients and customers can see who's doing this well and who's not. And there are multiple elements to this. There's obviously the skill sets of employees, the technology platforms, the leading security protocols, But just as importantly, there is a large element of culture. The comfort level of working collaboratively in a distributed environment, the ability to embed purpose and genuine human connection in a virtualized environment to retain those critically important team dynamics and employee engagement. Joe, great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. Welcome back to Leadership Next. 
For anyone who's new to the podcast or the Fortune family, understanding the human side of business, effective, often breakthrough leadership, has long been at the heart of our coverage. And the heart of our heart has long been Jeff Colvin. Jeff Colvin is an extraordinary journalist and author, the chronicler of executive action, and he's also a leader in our own newsroom. Jeff, thank you for letting me say nice things about you, and welcome to Leadership Next. <laughs> well, I'm glad you stopped when you did, but uh, thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be uh, talking with you about our topic today. I'm so glad. And our topic today is Mary Barra. So I know that you've been reporting on her for many years now. What's something you think most people don't know about her? Uh, I suspect many people don't know that she, at one point in her career, was made the HR chief of General Motors. She had spent most of her career in operating roles, mm. and she was clearly being prepared for great things at GM. And as part of that, she was given this staff assignment as head of HR. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she discovered when she got that job was that General Motors had a 10-page dress code. And <laughs> she saw that and she said, this is ridiculous. So she quickly replaced the 10-page dress code with a two-word dress code, dress appropriately. And it turned out that some managers in GM were freaked out by this. <laughs> it was like, oh, no. And they called her up. Well, how will we, what can we, how will people know how to dress? And that actually revealed something to her, mm -hmm. that if executives at GM thought that they just had rules to follow and that their job was simply to follow a rule book, that was not the kind of executives you wanted. And she actually... Uh, revolutionized managerial training there that really came out of that. That is so interesting because it also strikes me that that's a pretty good foundation for building a more inclusive workforce. Yes. But I want to ask you something else. Just listening to her in this interview and the conversation I had with her, she struck me as almost unusually calm, very relaxed. Yeah. The company is handling the pandemic. The company is handling a conversation about race. Now, maybe that's not a surprise given all the challenges she's been handed during her tenure, but it struck me as something really notable about her. Yes, you quickly realize that she's just telling you what she thinks. Right. And what people often don't realize, at least not right away, is that Despite this very plain, low-key manner, there is a steeliness that is never far away. That's interesting. Let's, let's go back to her first few days as CEO, 2014. She walks into a scandal involving faulty ignition switches. Can you talk a little bit about how she handled that and how she was able to really apply her unique management style? Yeah, uh, that was critical how she behaved in those first few weeks. Uh, and people may not recall because it was now six years ago, but there was this ignition switch crisis. Quite a number of people had died in accidents that happened when something went wrong in the Chevy Cobalt and the uh, airbags didn't deploy. And this had been studied for years. That's a story in itself. But eventually, the problem had been solved, the mystery was solved, and they figured out what had to be done. But no recall had been issued. And that's what she walked into. It was just a terrible situation. 
The recall was issued three weeks after she got the job. She had to make that decision almost instantly upon becoming CEO. And this was a terrible crisis, as you can imagine. They knew it would cost GM billions and billions of dollars because lots of people died in these accidents. And her approach to this was, okay, this is an opportunity to change the culture of General Motors. And the hardest assignments in business in general are changing the culture of a company. And changing the culture of General Motors was probably at the top of the list of most difficult cultures to change. Mm. Under Mary Barr, the GM culture has changed in a few really significant ways. One of the most significant ways is it has become more outwardly focused. For decades, the way GM worked was all according to internal scorecards. They didn't look outward to judge themselves. They only looked inward. Well, this is not a very good way to run a company in a competitive economy. She has really made them outwardly looking. This is a big change. Two, people are accountable. And again, that may sound obvious, but for decades at GM, very few people were really personally accountable for anything. I know it's hard to believe, but people were rarely fired for performance. They just weren't held accountable. Wow. She is very strong on holding people accountable. And then third, a related thing, the incredible GM reliance on committees is being at least scaled back. This is one reason nobody was accountable. Everything, and I mean everything, had a committee for it. That meant everything took a long time and nobody was accountable. Well, she has had some success in scaling that way back. You don't need or want a committee for everything. She was able to use the crisis from the ignition switch problem to start changing the culture. And it took something that serious to be able to start to do it. And that's what she did. And it was extremely instructive, frankly, for any executive to look at how she did that. How did she build on that to change the culture? Uh, She did a few things. I remember speaking with former GM executives, longtime GM executives, who said what she said in response to this culture, said publicly and said to the employees, was unlike anything, any previous GM CEO, and this goes back over 100 years, different from what any GM CEO had ever said. She said, we do not want to put this behind us. In fact, she said, I don't want us to put this behind us. And that was the GM way. You know, if there was a problem, you did what was necessary to fix it, and then you swept it aside. It was never referred to again. She said, I don't want us ever to forget this. She went to the families of the people who had died in these accidents, went to their homes and visited them to talk to them about it. This was unheard of. GM didn't do things like that. She was showing by behavior some of what the new culture was going to be like. And that was critical. Listening to you talk, it strikes me that her pretty bold statement about inclusion and racial equity in the broader world yes. actually is hitting the ear of a GM employee in, in kind of a powerful way, that she may actually be able to be effective on this too. Well, that's right. 
And here's something that I think is important on that subject and more generally on what she is doing and how she's been getting it done. I asked her once about changing the culture at GM and how she was going to go about doing it. And she said, well, one of the first things is I'm not going to talk about culture. She realized that talking about it doesn't really amount to anything. Culture is behavior. That It's as simple as that. And it's millions of little actions right. day in and day out. And she said, I'm not going to talk about culture. Right. I'm just going to behave the culture that I want. I'm going to insist on certain things. I'm going to be very clear with my top team what I want from them and how we are going to do things. And that will cascade through the company. I'm not, don't talk about culture, just do it. Just show what you want. And again, this, is so, this was so un-GM-like. All seven, seven of the previous CEOs before her had all wanted to change the GM culture. Right. And they set up committees to do it, which was exactly <laughs> the GM way. Right. They had culture transformation committees. They hired culture consultants. That's how GM did everything. She said, no, no, no. So before I let you go, we, we did talk a little bit about diversity. She had mentioned that she credits the work that GM had done on diversity over the years for her job as CEO. I'm curious if you think she's going to be effective in her own diversity initiatives going forward. Oh, I do think so. And there is uh, significant evidence that she has been effective so far. Measures of pay equity and so forth throughout the company look very good. She makes a great case for it, and uh, it seems to be working out very well. So that's my expectation. Mary, I know every organization is doing some soul searching about representation, particularly at the executive level, all the way through. Have you seen any unusual opportunities? Maybe it's from a working from home, a hybrid working model perspective, where you could see upping some of the underrepresented folks in your executive ranks? Well, I think uh, for most folks, and, and having um, been a working mom my whole career, I think for some, it gave them a picture of what goes on in running a household and children that you're schooling and, and balancing all of that. So I think it's been a window into that, where I think there's much more understanding and appreciation. I know the first time, you know, I heard a dog bark or a children interrupt a call and the, and the people were worried. I'm like, no, it's great. You know, like come in and say <laughs> hi. And so I think there's been much more understanding from that perspective. And I think that in itself is going to provide opportunity. But I also think it's going to take focus and being very deliberate. I've already had a lot of conversation. We, we have been doing work, you know, right now as we promote people to the senior leader, if there's not a diverse slate, I ask the team, what will you do in the next one to three years? So the next time you come forward, there is a diverse slate. So we had a lot of programs underway, but we'll be doing more and have more focus on it. Mary, part of the impetus for the creation of this podcast, Leadership Next, was the statement that the Business Roundtable put out last August, changing the definition of the purpose of a corporation away from a shareholder, primarily focused statement to one that looked at all stakeholders. You were a big part of that. I know you were involved in the deliberations and in the crafting of that. What does it mean to you? Why did it happen? Why was that happening now? Well, I think um, it was a recognition that we needed to update the BRT statement to reflect the way many of us were operating. 
and I regularly talk to many of our shareholders and our large investors, and there's an expectation that we're looking at all stakeholders, all groups, employees, dealers, suppliers, communities in which we live and work. And so to me, it was much more about capturing the way we govern the company than anything else. So to me, it was an update of something that was the, the statement was catching up with reality. Do you think most businesses operate that way? I will just say from a BRT, we found great support to go ahead and, and make those changes. So I think it was more common than not. I feel like I'm always the downer on these calls, partly because I've been on the race beat for a long time and I'm used to tackling some really tough issues. But when I look at GM, just in the last six months, you had a a challenging strike, a difficult geopolitical situation to deal with, pandemic, and now this really overdue, painful, necessary conversation about race and equity. What have you learned about keeping a workforce engaged and supported and feeling that they can trust you. Well, I think you bring up a really good point. I think trust is at the center of everything. And clearly, there were a lot of external factors that resulted in our work stoppage last fall that were beyond our control. But, you know, we stepped back and said, what can we learn from that? What can we do better? And so, and a lot of it starts with communications. It's hard for someone to trust you if they don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. So we've really changed our whole mindset around how we communicate, how we share what we're doing, transparency. I'm a firm believer if you really can't over-communicate. And we also have to find different channels because people want to get information in different ways. And so we've worked hard on that. We've also, again, looked across all aspects of what the relationship is between our employees and the company and making sure that we look across from a benefit perspective, from a compensation perspective, from an engagement perspective, and really leveraging that as a system. So we're going through and looking at what can we do better? You know, one of the things that was very important for the entire company and the leadership team is as we brought people back to work, that we took the time to understand, you know, people are coming from different places with this pandemic. There's some people who are very fortunate and they've had really, they don't even know anyone who has caught the virus. And then we have people on the other extreme who have lost loved ones or may have a family member that's a first responder or or works in the hospital. And so we stepped back and said, the number one thing we have to do is we bring people back is understand where they're coming from, be open to answer their questions, provide options, and be empathetic. Give each other, you know, assume goodness and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And that messaging has worked. And I've, I've been in seven plants so far as we resume production. And I couldn't be more impressed with the teamwork and the caring that is being demonstrated across all levels in the plant. So it's obviously, it's a serious situation, but we've got to take that level of caring and empathy and communication and transparency across everything we do. Mary, I have to ask you before we go, back in March when the pandemic was just getting going, you were on the receiving end of a Twitter broadside from the president for dragging your heels on converting a factory to making ventilators. What happened? You know, I think if you imagine everything that was going on at that point in time, I think it was a misunderstanding. You know, we had from the day Ken Chanel called me and introduced us to the company Ventec, the next day our team was talking and within, I think, the next day or the day after they were on a plane And from when that first connection was made to the first ventilator rolling off the line was literally a month. Wow. But I think in that early phase, I think it was a misunderstanding. We were trying to understand 
how many we needed to plan for because we were planning to scale up for volume. I've had many conversations with key members of the administration, uh, including the president, and I think it's well behind us. And I put it in the category of misunderstanding. How many ventilators did you end up making? We're still making them. And by um, August, uh, toward the end of August, we'll have made 30,000. Wow, that's really amazing. And will that factory then convert back to automobiles? The area in the plant that we leveraged was not making, it was actually a components plant and it was not being utilized. So it's something that has optionality for us as we go forward. Mary Barra, tough time to be a CEO of a company like GM, but thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. It was great to talk to both of you. So thanks, Alan, and thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.